Well, thank you again for joining the Grim and Bloody podcast. Um, This is a retrospective edition where we sit back and review one of uh, what we consider um, the horror genres um, influential or popular or or critically successful uh, films uh, tonight. Um, we are touching on Scott Derrickson's Sinister, which was produced in 2012 by Blumhouse Studios. Um, this featured Ethan Hawke as father and um, a well-rounded cast, including a uh, demon that looked a lot like the uh, drummer from Slipknot. Um, but if anyone has seen uh, Sinister, then um, you know that this is a disturbing movie. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, it touched on you know, family tragedy, hubris. It had strong supernatural elements. Um, it had a lot of mythology behind the demon. There was some thought process that went behind it. Um, I thought the execution from beginning to end was, uh, was absolutely spot on. And um, it was just one of those examples of Blumhouse producing a movie on a, uh, a small to micro budget that um, really just this one they knocked it clear out of the park and um, it was good enough that it produced a sequel that unfortunately did not lay it up to you know they didn't live up to the um, the potential of the first one um, but at least we got this gem of a, uh, a horror movie what, what did you guys think when you first saw Sinister um, what did you walk away feeling Joe, you want to go first? Oh, I'll go first since I was mucking about <laughs> uh, in my in my lab. Uh, no, no. What it what what really got me, and of course, as Anthony will say, was the very beginning of this film that draws you in. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the snuff film, you know, which is uh, nothing you should really watch, people. Trust me, uh, you don't want to watch those kind of things. This is disappointing, actually. Yeah, and, and of course, what drawed me in was Ethan Hawke's performance, which uh, this is the true story or the trivia that I was looking up about this film, is that he was named after, character-wise, after two people. Uh, Ellison Hart, like one of the authors, and uh, Patton Oswalt, who's a big horror fan. So that's the derogatory of his character's name. Uh, Hall- yeah, Hollison. Yeah. Harlan Ellison. That's the name. Yes. And he, you know, his performance in this film is what really sets the movie in motion. And. I, you know, I would say yes. It's definitely one of the better films, or really good films, that came out of this last, you know, ten years or eight years since it was released. You know, compared right. to like, you know, like other films that came out that tried to duplicate it, or they're like, kind of like, eh, yeah, you know. And the fun part about this film, too, with the trivia, Anthony, is the writer of this film, the reason why 
this movie stuck with him was because he had a nightmare after watching the movie The Ring. Yeah. And that's how this film kind of came about. Pretty much. Yeah. And so, basically, hey, I watched The Ring, and then all of a sudden, I have a nightmare. I, I got to dot this down. And this is what Sinister became. And even though you don't really know who's really behind the filming of the, you know, of the killing of the family up until, and I'm not going to give away the ending. I think we I'm, can. It's almost 10 years old. <laughs> that's true. It is almost 10 years old. Sorry, this guys, is a retrospective, so I, we would assume if you're listening Everyone. to this that you saw Sinister, that you just want to learn more or you just want our opinions about it. Yes, and this is the thing, too. And talk about it, it was actually on Sci-Fi today. It's a few hours ago. Oh, hey. Uh, Did not so, know. Yeah, it was just like I was flipping the channels and I go, ah, Sinister's on. Hey, cool. But yeah, it's one of the kids in the from the family in the film as the movie starts off and you see the family swinging from the trees which also kind of gives you that conjuring vibe as well which was you know in a scene from the conjuring but not trying to duplicate that but this movie is really good i really enjoyed it it you know had its non, you know, scary moments, but I'm gonna let Al take over. I watched this and for me, I saw a number of tropes, four tropes, but done in a order and combination that I had not seen before. So I was really struck that this was a new and different kind of movie. Uh, my my personally only complaint about the whole thing was that the uh, and yes I'm going to leave it with the ending so cover your ears the the demon that shows up we don't get enough backstory on him I find too many movies these days there's no longer the discovery and backstory on on what this is and how it got here there is in this movie but just on the demon since we're not familiar with that name I would have liked a little bit more. But that's like the worst thing I can say about this entire movie is that they just didn't give us quite enough on one little tiny subject. The rest of it was very interesting. I enjoyed the sheriff's performance very much. And that, of course, in this movie, the sheriff is um, giving the author a kind of a hard time. We don't need people in here make a mess and then uh, you know, that sort of thing. And then at the end, when they're leaving, he says, you know, someone didn't. You're not leaving because someone scared you off or something. So I won't have that. So it's nice to see a nice level, him wind up being a very level-headed and even-handed sheriff. Yes. The, uh, yes. Yeah. I like Fred Thompson in uh, Hunt for Red yes. October. He was an uh, excellent uh, aircraft commander. He, yes, he's, he's a great actor. I like seeing him in a lot of things. Yes. Now, daughter, too. If anyone recognizes the daughter, Juliet Rylance, that is the uh, stepdaughter of Mark Rylance, an obvious Hollywood veteran. So this movie had some heft. It, it had some. It had some um, skilled actors behind it. Um, oh, very I think true. One of the things that probably doesn't get mentioned as much is Christopher Young's score. 
Ah. His effort bore in, both in the original music as well as the selected cuts um, that were um, spliced. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they were used both ways, both in, in the film as well as um, notably the, the snuff films. Every snuff film had two um, different musics. One was, as they started out, it was more ambiguous, almost lighthearted, a little ominous. Um, then when you know the the killing began, the music just turned you know turned for the dark. Um, it was it was disturbing. It was sinister, you know, uh, literally. Um, and especially um, the lawnmower scene that will probably stand out as one of the scariest uh, moments my opinion of 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 cinema uh, i'm putting that right up there with um all of the tops ones whatever you can pull from the shining conjuring or or whatever your top one is when you're watching that one and um, you're kind of getting lulled into you know the flashlight the rain patter um the the droning of the music and then you see the child on the grass uh, that Pretty much your reaction is Ethan Hawke's reaction. I thought that was absolutely perfect. Uh, at that point, you're you're in it. Um, so <clears throat> Christopher Young's score, as good as the movie is, and it was excellent. I thought the, the effort behind the, the music and the sound effects were, were equally as impressive. In fact, um, you can go out and find those different artists. They're obscure artists. They weren't artists that you would probably know off the top of your head like oh my god that's hydrogen you know never heard of them right um, a couple of the artists have only put out one album right um but they're good listens um they're all quality and um i was really pleased to see that and he brought in music um from artists that maybe you would have known but you know now because of this movie and here's some fun, more fun facts about this film fun facts yes Fun fact, uh, Ethan Hawke had never seen a snuff film before until they started feeding him all the prints that they used in the film. So that is his genuine reaction to watching something like a snuff film. You know, I have to wonder, how do you qualify snuff film? I mean... That's true. We're kids, we're playing around, we got a camera... Uh, I, I seem to remember making uh, a version of the creature from the green latrine, um, which involved killing some people. So, uh, what actually makes it a snuff film? I think Does the act of a murder. Be something unbelievable. I made a, a little one with my short film, The Last Showing. Uh, I hired an actor off of uh, uh, Craigslist, and um, hey, I told them that you know this role is going to be brutal. Um, you're not going to enjoy it. Um, you're going to be covered in you know, fake sweat going in your eyes um, because you're nervous, you're tied up, right? You're surrounded by blood. Um, and that was, that was fun, let me tell you. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just, if the snuff film, it's, you're, you're filming something with, there's going to be a murderous intent. Um, something it's like going to be yeah. a crime. Um, and you're right. recording it for basically your own vanity. Um, so, sort of like, like our film last week in the Grim and Bloody Theater. Yes. 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 <laughs> but 
Here's another fun fact. Originally, they kind of wanted the demon to look similar to like what Johnny Depp looked like in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But then they decided, no, that'd be too silly. So I they scratched that idea. I think, Jerry. I think you know, if they'd have given them slightly longer teeth and a little bit more red around the edges of his eyes and that sort of thing, that that could have been really, really frightening. Oh, I agree. You the Candyman is coming for you. No way right. they made that movie already. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. And again, too, you know, and this movie, you know, was on a small, not a super big, big budget. Three million. Three million. That seems like it's the target budget for for Blumhouse movies. And it, it, it right. pulled, what, 87? So, it, yeah, yeah it, it made a killing for what they it put in. It made a killing, yeah. It, you know, I think it was like, I want, I don't, I don't really know, but yeah, you know, it was just, it made its money back, definitely. Oh, wow. You know, I thank you. <laughs> but, and, you know, and of course they decided, you know, because of its success, they did the sequel, and I believe our demon is coming back. And I could be wrong, uh, but he's going to pop up, I believe, in the Conjuring universe. Well, that'd be fun. And just so, so you know, the, the cumulative worldwide gross on this was $82 million There you go. For a $3 million investment. Yeah. That's Hello. not bad. No. Thank you. I salute you all, <laughs> you know. But yeah, it is a movie that some people... You know, if you're not really a big fan of horror films, you might get a little nervous and squirmish because of some of the stuff in this film. But, you know, don't let that get to you, man. No, this was a tough watch. If you're a family person, this was a tough watch. If you have kids, this was a tough watch. Um, if, like you mentioned, if you're kind of sort of in a horror, um, then you're going to you're going to be sitting down you're going to you're going to question <laughs> your decision making um, yes but at the end if you can make it to the end if you can just separate you know uh, fiction from reality at least for you know two hours um, you're going to be put on a roller coaster ride um, you're going to be sitting in with this family that have old war wounds um, they have problems um, the way that uh, C. Robert Scargill I hope I got his name right um, and Scott Derrickson uh, crafted the the family. It was extremely relatable. It was very oh, yeah. easy yeah. to relate to them to say I can understand their their motivations, especially uh, Ethan Hawke. Um, he's he's a family man. He he's trying to put his family first. He's using himself to push his family forward. And then how many how many families can you know say the same thing? Yes, yeah. Our dad does that. He will do whatever it takes to, you know, provide for his family. Um, now there is a point in the movie where um, Ethan Hawke is—he realizes he's in over his head with these movies. Um, he he looks at the the films. He's about to call the police and say, "I need to turn this in because you know this is clearly evidence that they missed that they need to investigate." And then he looks at his Kentucky Blood Book, right? And it's that point I thought that if he turns it in, we probably we don't have a movie, right? 
Okay. He continues, and then we're like, no, 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 no. You shouldn't have gone down that road, right? Perhaps yeah. you did because it's a wonderful horror movie. Um, but you can tell that his character, his, he was motivated also with, you know, um, trying to recapture uh, his past glory. You know, when he tells his wife, yes. all I need is one more hit, right? And then we're set, right? Um, he's using, he's also using the family to further his own uh, interests. He doesn't want to, you know, grade technical books anymore. He wants to become serious. He's rewatching, you know, his old interviews, right? He he, he yeah. still has it, right? That's what's propelling him forward, and um, that's basically what is clouding his judgment. Um, and before he knows it, um, he you know, he has to get out of this house. He's burning, but by then, it, as we know, it's far too late, right? The, the demon has him in its clutches, um, and from then on it's just you're watching this family unravel but i thought um showing the children's um reaction like the night terrors from the very get-go we're talking early in the movie right the the son is suffering from night terrors and he hasn't had that um before and the alcohol use um that's something else there's just little things that just build um his use of alcohol which you know leads to smoking right um so there's this unraveling of the family um, coupled with uh, the intensity of the, uh, the supernatural elements. I thought it was, it was a perfect combination. It was just, it was, it was fun to watch. And let me tell you, it was, it was a tough watch. Uh, this wasn't easy to sit through the first time, um, but if you can make it on the other end, yeah, it was, it was enjoyable. Yes. And remember, it's just a movie. Mm-hmm. It's not real life. And talk about craziness. Uh, since we're gearing up closer and closer to Halloween. Uh, If you can believe this, Queen Bohemian Rhapsody was released on Halloween, 1975. Didn't know that one. Uh, You know, one of the things that uh, may be unclear for the people that have not seen this movie is that one of the plot points here is that uh, what has happened is our, our hero, the writer, has written... A, a book which re-examined what happened during a, a particular trial and wound up changing the course of that trial because the police missed something. And yeah. emboldened by yeah. that, he'd gone and written a second book and doing the same thing, and he was completely wrong this time. So that's why the sheriff doesn't really like him very much. And that's what he's doing. He's not just chasing uh, old glory here. If he writes another book about a, a, a crime and he's right this time and takes the the taint off the last failure yeah and he can quit a winner and he can be uh, his family can be proud of him and that's very important to him on on many levels and that's really his descent into madness he's chasing a dream and and he's I think sorry for what he did the last time that he didn't mean to derail or screw up the police investigation by writing about stuff they may have missed when they, in fact, did not miss anything. Very true. That's, that's always the uh, the problem. I, I, I know somebody who is uh, a quote-unquote trained psychic, and the, they say the first thing they, they tell you is never tell the police anything because if you tell them what you know, uh, that you saw something, they'll think that you did it. So... <laughs> uh, it's very hard to 
want to, you know, have something that you really want and know that you're good, but you screwed up the last time. Everyone's second guessing you. So it's a, a huge emotional drain on our, our hero, which is why he has these problems. He goes yeah. to the alcohol, the smoking, and the so forth and so on. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think Joe mentioned earlier if they made Bagul um, scarier, maybe it would have been more effective. Um, I don't think so. I, I, yeah, I, I kind I of agree. I thought the less, the less was better in this case. Um, I thought that... Yes, he did have striking similarities to a couple of uh, rock groups. It just basically looked like guy paint. Um, but that was fine because his, his screen time was limited, right? Um, he was, you know, glimpses here and there. Um, it was the mythology of Bagul. It was his um, his influence over children um, right. that stood out. Um, but I, I think more or less, it was his overarching pressure of forcing the family out of that house into another one where it lined up right where he wanted him. Um, I, I thought it was that increasing you know, every episode was worse than the last. Um, that was his influence. That was Bugul. So basically we probably even had to see Bugul maybe once because just shown a picture of him and that would have been enough. Like um, when he was walking underwater, that would have been enough. Right. Hello. Uh, <laughs> we didn't need any close-ups. Uh, in fact, I thought the mythology probably went a little bit too far. Sometimes I like um, monsters that have a little bit of mystery to them, that you don't know where they're from, you don't know, um, you know, what their end game is. Uh, you just know that they're here and they're causing problems, uh, and that's enough to, you know, we gotta stop them. Exactly. Yeah. How do we get away? No, from see, it's the opposite for me. I want to know everything so I can, you know, I can analyze it and know what to do. <laughs> that's what I want. And and I say there's no right or wrong in this case because you know people. Well, they didn't want actually to this case. Yeah, uh, that's, just, that's just it. When I said that uh, you know they didn't give enough backstory, it's only a little bit, and it's only on that one little problem. Now, the rest of it I thought was you know just perfect, and even this was even the one issue I had with it is very small. So this is a very good movie. Well, how about a yeah. shout out to Vincent D'Onofrio? Of yeah. metal jacket fame, of Jurassic World fame, and uh, he had a small role, but how pivotal was it? He's basically, you know, the synopsis. He's telling us, you know, he, he's re the exposition. Uh, when we get to his part in the movie, um, we're looking for answers, and we found a guy who has the answers. Only Ethan Hawke doesn't listen, <laughs> right? Yeah. When we get to the point where someone has some some serious intel on what's happening. Ethan Hawke doesn't take it to heart, right? He, no. he listens, so he kind of takes it under advisement. That's it. Even at the end, right when he's already drinking uh, the poison coffee, he's listening like, uh, "I already did that, right? I already burned the things. I'm I'm free to go." Um, so I, I thought Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, it was a surprise to see him, and it was a pleasure because I, I ever since um, his war movie, um, he's always been able to play that kind of you know, sinister kind of. You know, intense, almost feral uh, person that um, you put on the screen, it just you get that feeling there's something in this guy that's dark, right? Even if he's playing a good guy, you know that he can turn bad at any second, right? So, yes. Uh, it, it was good. That he, he was a good cast in this. I've enjoyed his work for a long time. I, I don't think he's done his best work yet, but uh, yeah. D'Onofrio certainly has some range 
and it has some real interesting aspects to it. Uh, I wanted to mention for a moment, unless uh, Joy has something to say about uh, D'Onofrio. No, okay. go ahead, Al. All right. In this movie, we have a, a scene where the uh, their uh, family's being hung, and uh, there are some technical problems with how they uh, portray that. But I'm not going to give them a hard time because it plays well with the movie the way they do it. Uh, but for some trivia, things do not always go right. And their stunt coordinator, who set these people up on a, a basically a body rig and, and so forth to make it safe, the, there's no weight going to their neck, he screwed up. And the first time they hoisted them up, uh, they were, in fact, choking. And uh, they did survive, and they did fire the stunt coordinator. Oh, man, that's bad. So it happens. I was, I was just... I uh, didn't hear that. Was that in the special features? Uh, no, but that's uh, some of the background I looked up. Oof. These things do happen to the best of people. I mean, I was yeah. just working on the zombie movie, and we had a, a stunt woman. Uh, and she had to fight off a zombie, and they rehearsed it a bit and so forth, and it looked great, and they went for the take. And she, I guess he maybe leaned in too close and she clocked him a good one. And so now he's bleeding down his face and we had to stop in between takes to uh, mop up the blood because it didn't match the zombie blood. <laughs> so we can't right. have bleeding real blood on the set, man. <laughs> so that's uh, supposed to happen. Accidents no. do happen. You got to remember when it comes to stunts, man, these things are dangerous no matter what you do about them. Not All you can true. do is try to avoid the, the obvious mistakes. This guy didn't, apparently. Yeah. So. And, and I do agree with Al. It does happen to the best of them. It's not like they're intending to hurt anyone. But, hey, so accidents do happen, you know? And that's why it's always, you know, hey, triple, you know, double, triple, whatever it is to do when you're doing yeah. stunts like that. Like, well, hey. that, that is not generally considered a dangerous stunt. I mean, they do uh, lots of hangings, but they did do a very dangerous stunt in this movie. In the scene where the family is taped to the lawn chairs and pulled into the water, I'm yeah. sure the insurance people just had kittens when they saw this, because that's exactly how they filmed it. They taped them to the chairs and really them in the pool. And I'm sure there was each each person had a, a spotter there. To, to watch and see if they were overly distressed. But as uh, Bruce Campbell pointed out in, in one scene of the uh, original Evil Dead, you know, they're dumping like 500 gallons of, of blood on him at one point, directly onto his face. And he said, you know, what do I do if I, if I can't breathe? And they said, well, just flail around a lot. Said, That's what I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah. You have to have some really special cues for these people and spotters for them in case some, anything bad happens. Fortunately, that stunt coordinator worked better. Yeah. I'm glad I was not on that film. I would not like that stunt. No, no. Oh, no. Um, I, I'm sure not too many, you know, the advent of Wiki, you can instantly find some insider information. But um, Scott Derrickson, this wasn't his first foray into horror. Um, no. Yeah, people might not know, he did Hellraiser Inferno. Wow, yes. which I thought was one of the the worst uh, installments of the Hellraiser franchise. I mean, don't go some... there, man. <laughs> don't. 
But yeah. he also did the exorcism of Emily Rose, which I watched. And oh, yeah. the pacing was a little slow, but I, I appreciated the That was a better that's definitely a good movie. The mix of judicial, supernatural, uh, or paranormal. Um that movie had a little bit it had a different tone. It was almost a uh, a retelling of you know something horrific um, that may or may not have you know uh, happened the way that they were describing it. Um, he also did the they the Earth stood still, so he he Ooh. knows how to the remake exactly. Yeah. yeah, he knows how to work <laughs> with some serious material here, um, which yeah. I thought probably only, but. I would say that um, you know, Hellraiser Inferno and the Exorcism Ever Rose, you, you saw, you know, it was one of his early films. And he also did Urban Legends. So he's right. been on the set of horror. You know, you can tell that I think after a few iterations of I, I know what I learned from this movie, I took, you know, the good parts from this movie, I applied it to this one. I know we, we did a uh, a quick um uh, uh, recording about Dune. And we're talking about the director, how he wasn't ready to do that movie until he did something else, right? I, I think that does ring true when you you are inexperienced, you're still learning. Uh, you're going to take what you learned here. And you're also going to take, you know, bits of what really worked in other places. Um, so this movie felt like, although it was a small budget, uh, and the locations were small. I mean, there was, like, you could probably, what, four? five yeah. locations tops right yeah. it was mostly in the house um it didn't feel that way it didn't feel claustrophobic um it just felt like we're watching a very small snippet of this family's life at the end um so uh, kudos to scott derrickson because um he, he could have he, he, the material probably on paper looked small right the scale was small um the time lapse was small but it didn't feel like that in the movie. In the movie, it felt like the pacing was perfect, right? The scale was perfect. So, um, yeah. What else can you say about this movie that you know has been said already? I just feel bad that the second movie didn't live up to the first. I thought the second one was, it, although he wasn't directing, he was still involved. It, it felt like a letdown. It felt like they probably went a little bit too more too over the top with the the children and. Yeah, they didn't focus the enough on scares. the family. Exactly. Um, they didn't focus enough on the family's plight um, as they did in the first one. Right. Because, yeah, I was reading a little bit about the sequel, too, and how the audience weren't too fond of the too many jump scares that they're throwing in the sequel. You know, it's like, hey, you know, a couple is great. You know, but don't try to oversell it or hammer it at us, you know? Well, that's what you do when you don't have a real plot for it. Yeah, that's true. You the just start filling rarely, with random stuff. Yeah, the sequels rarely live up to the, the hype of the first one. Uh, but another thing that you often see in that situation, I haven't looked it up at all, but that either you A, have someone saying, we're not spending that much money, jump scares are cheap or B you have some producer that says uh, or somebody on the high mucky mucks come in and say I like this let's do that let's do this that I have the thing I like a lot and uh, they have no idea I mean come on someone in a boardroom said Sharknado was a good idea that's right 
Yeah. <laughs> and everyone so, thought that was crazy until he started rolling in the bank. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is sadly true that, uh, as I said, the sequels don't always li- live up to it. And it can be hard to make a, a good sequel, even if you have good people. Right. All right. So, I thought uh, James Ransom was a good choice if they were going to select a character. I mean, he was the obvious choice because he survived the first he one. He was in the first film, yeah. As the deputy right? so and so. Although yeah. it didn't really transfer, like his his uh, experience in the, it didn't really transfer. It was more of he was still there, but it's not like he took what he learned from this family and helped the other family. Um, True. It, it felt more like, oh, we're going to choose you because you were just there. <laughs> and we're going to put well, you here. We're going to give you a few more lines and a few more locations. It wasn't like, um, I like to use the example of Ellen Ripley. She learned from what happened in Alien. She applied it to two, right? It was as clear as day, right? It's like, I'm not waiting for this and this to happen. I'm just going to take this gun and, and handle it, right? It didn't feel like that with James uh, Ransom's character. It felt more like, oh, I survived there, but I guess I'm still here, so yeah, I can help you too. Well, that's the problem is if they had made him into a more a proactive character, yeah, then he would have been. A he was more, way too uh, passive. Yeah, it would have been a more of a mainstream, uh, uh, more than more the uh, protagonist in the movie, and they didn't have him slated as that. So that that was the problem there. And plus, with the, supposedly the Vincent D'Onofrio's character supposedly going missing after. The first film. Yeah, I didn't know, understand that. You know, it's like, hey, why not? You know, if they could have brought Vincent D'Onofrio and James Ransom, who is as who's in the first one as the deputy so and so, you know, and he was like trying to warn the family, hey, there's something really creepy going on. I think you should get the hell out of here, you know, and don't look back, you know. But no. No. Can't have that. You wouldn't have a movie then. Yeah. Where's Sarah Connor? Are you Sarah Connor? There we go. (laughs) Come with me if you want to live. We we won't be back. (laughs) Sorry. Now, one of the things I found out about this is that uh, they actually used a lot of eight millimeter and super eight millimeter film to give it that uh, that old look. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Yes, they. I did. know they got criticized a little before. I mean, it felt perfect. It, I'm sure they could have achieved the same thing with you know this, uh, higher technology, um, but the fact that they just did it anyway. So we're going to shoot this in super eight on film. I don't really think I shouldn't say that um, for the money. I think maybe this was actually just the co- most cost effective way to do it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, now they yeah. were. The camera they used uh, is one that I have used on a film uh, where it, it can handle a lot of the uh, the old stuff. And, and and specifically, there's a specific current modern camera for this. I, I don't know the name of it because I don't use it. Uh, I'm not the cameraman. But uh, there's a specific camera that when people want to film something in film, they can handle this. And they use that. But apparently, when they did the underwater shot of the Boogeyman, that was a, a standard eight uh, millimeter camera at the time, and they had a lot of problems with it. You know, making sure that it didn't get wet. I suppose if you were worried about a shot, I'll, I'll use the you know two hundred dollar 
old camera, not the $25,000 new camera for that dangerous shot. Yeah. So. But yes. Yeah, yes. We say it's low budget and they had an Ari Alexa camera. Right? That, yeah. <laughs> it, there's an illusion here. They have money. Um, they're spending it wisely. Uh, well, not necessarily. We don't know that. What we know is that they spent $3 million. That may have been all they needed. True. They may have had a larger budget available to them. They simply didn't use it because rather than be extravagant and spend it on things that they didn't need, they spent it on uh, exactly what they needed for exactly what they wanted to do and had a, a, a I hope, a clear vision of what the outcome was, was supposed to be. And that's how they got from point A to point B. It cost them $3 million. If it had cost them five, they might have had that money. But it's nice to see somebody that can come in on budget. Yes. True. It's also a staple of Blumhouse Studios. They're, they're making horror. Uh, I think they probably recognized early on the, um, the failures of past horror movies who, who threw a lot of money in movies when it failed and studios you know, soured on big budget horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, they came in and said, you know what? We can make lean movies um, that don't require you. I think what's the most I've ever seen a Blumhouse do like 10 million, maybe on a production. Um, I mean, they do spend a lot of money in promotion. Um, that's a given. Um, you, you can easily uh, know when a Blumhouse movie is coming out. Um, but as far as the production, they keep that lean and mean. They're still using high quality stuff, but I think it's also on purpose. I think they can come in and say, we make low budget movies that are high quality and um, it's it's easier, I'm sure, to attract investors because you know they started out with what? Paranormal activity, right? Yeah. A budget that was next to nothing and it, it made you know boatloads, right? So they, I think they started with a template. They said, we, we have a budget here. It forces us to be creative. Um, we're st- we're not going to scrimp on you know the camera quality. I thought their camera quality has also always been good. It's always been good. Um, yes, but it's just you know I think it's on purpose. I think they have kind of like a ceiling. They said this is as the most we're going to spend. We're going to force our our filmmakers to become creative. Um, we're going to give them the resources that they need, but we're also not going to drop thirty five forty million on a movie. Um, we're going to make sure our our investors um, are are getting their stuff back because we want to make more movies. Yeah. And also you, you look at the, uh, okay. I, I don't want to sit here and say some actors were more expensive than others, but you look at say, uh, D'Onofrio and Fred Thompson, their parts were probably shot, you know, in half a day. True. Yeah. You know? So the, the cost of them wasn't that high, even though they had them on the show. The only, uh, I don't say the only big name was Ethan Hawke, but you know he was, of course, the the main cost, and he's there, and they he's the main character, so that's okay. So it was nice that they were able to bring in these other well-known, strong actors, even for small parts, uh, and not cost, not break the bank, because that was important. True. You know, and just I was just recently looking up what's coming up from Blumhouse. And stuff like that. So just to give you an idea of what their horror films are going to look like for the next couple of months. It's getting long real fast. <laughs> oh, just real quick. You have the uh, Fifth Purge movie. 
Oh God. I'm I'm uh, tired of this. And then of course the two back to back sequels to Halloween. Okay, I'll get coming out. So those are like the next three films they have kind of lined up. I think they're doing another paranormal activity, right? Oh, and God. I believe so too. Maybe even though, uh, you know. Yeah, I think they are. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> doubt it, but you know, and don't get me wrong. Uh, my thoughts on paranormal activity will remain that of Joplin of silence. <laughs> well, I think it bears in mind here that. With the pandemic and, of course, the slowdown of the film industry, when you have a, a studio that knows how to keep their costs down, it's less of a problem for them than some of these people that uh, they're, they're really betting on their next big movie, much like our character was it in this movie, betting on his next big book. Yeah. These right. people can bide their time and say, okay, we can't make a lot of films right now. Um, we'll use that time to uh, uh, really plan out that next movie and we can do it and they'll probably do it for half the cost and it'll make twice as much money yeah so uh, we're fortunate that we have a few places that still know how to make a good cheap movie and I think Sinister was awesome yes here, here. indeed yeah it's been out long enough that sci-fi is now showing it that should tell you <laughs> that this movie um, has aged, but it has aged well. Um, I don't think we've talked anything about the uh, the practical or special effects. Um, we will keep this short, nice and clean. I think we've already been talking about 30, 40 minutes. Um, this movie is available everywhere. Um, you can find Amazon Prime. It's now made TV. Um, I, I would definitely check it out. Um, it's been mentioned every time we I see a post, someone says, give me your top 10 horror movies. Um, this is in it. Um, if you're a fan of the old school horror and you don't know what, you know, is good nowadays, check this one out. Um, it is good um, from beginning to end. As we've mentioned, all facets of this movie are excellent. Um, and I know there's an audience that, you know, digs horror movie scores, um, yeah. especially with the advent of streaming music, you know, playlists. Um, Spotify and Pandora have made it real easy to discover, you know, talent that you you wouldn't have really found anywhere else unless they you found the CD at Rasputin, right? The um, the oh, company or, released it, or, uh, or, or unless you listen to Doctor Demento occasionally <laughs> when you're younger. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, Doctor D. I think the biggest name uh, in, in this movie I thought was the composer Christopher Young. He did Hellraiser. I mean, he, he's yes, done he a long list of excellent scores. And, and this was, probably, I thought, one of his more unique, varied score. Um, I don't know how much um, uh, he had a hand in choosing the the outside music um, that was in the snuff film, but um, just separating that from his original score, um, although it was a lot, it was electronic. I mean, it was some ball-breaking stuff. Uh, you can yeah. listen to that and just fall into the mood of Sinister. So, uh, yeah, Christopher Young, he, he's still making music, and um, uh, this one was, I thought, one of his top uh, scores. There you go. That's very true. Christopher Young is a really talented composer, music score guy. You can't go wrong with any of his films. 
I agree. So, uh, you know, Anthony, uh, I don't know if I should say this, but uh, your 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 kids, when you were off the mic, came in and they said they wanted you to be famous again. <laughs> they wanted you to be happy and be famous again, Daddy. Yeah, Daddy. That'll be the first first death podcast. Maybe on the one day, one of those retrospectives. What happened? The Grim and Bloody Podcast. We're going to talk. Right. What happened to those guys? <laughs> well, that's our time, guys. Uh, appreciate you, Al, coming on and giving your expertise. Oh, you as well, Joe. Um, I love these I retrospectives. We can just kind of plunk a really good movie and um, uh, piece it apart. But this was um, uh, through and through a, once again, this should have a warning label on top of the warning label. This is a, uh, this is a hard movie. If you're a fan of horror, you're going to enjoy it. Um, if That's you're not a fan of horror, then you probably don't want to walk in a room with this is going on. Uh, <laughs> just saying, uh, there's some heavy themes in this movie, especially in the, uh, the family district. Um, I would also say that um, if you are squeamish, um, the snuff films are very, very real. Um, they pulled that off and um, that's just a credit to the filmmaking and um, the guys behind the camera. So um, check out Sinister um, done in 2012 starring Ethan Hawke uh, and produced by Jason Blum. Um, This was another entry into their rapidly expanding catalog of excellent movies. So um, yeah, we're going to continue watching uh, what these guys put up because it's quality stuff. Yes. So everyone go out and watch this and enjoy it. That's or right. Else. Okay, guys. Have a good night. And you good night. too. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Anytime, good Al. Good night, everyone. Absolute pleasure. Night, everybody. <laughs> night. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Mary Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> to Ellen. Billy Joel. <laughs> <laughs>